Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. And our second reading comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord.
All right, let's pray. Father, fill us now with all joy and hope in believing by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and uh, presume that you know that Matthew Perry died last Sunday, our time, at the young age of 54, profoundly young. Matthew Perry was huge in the 1990s as an actor, most of you all know. Uh, he was made famous as Chandler Bing in the TV show Friends. He wrote a memoir called Friends, Lovers and a Big Terrible Thing. The Big Terrible Thing is a long, long, long struggle with addiction and with alcohol. Matthew Perry needed help. But there's a story to tell here. Three decades and three weeks before he became Chandler on Friends, he prayed. I quote, out of nowhere, I found myself getting to my knees, closing my eyes tightly and praying. I had never done this before. He simply asked, God, you can do what you want to me. Just please make me famous. He goes on through, weeks later got cast as friends, and God had certainly kept his side of the bargain. But the Almighty, being the Almighty, had not forgotten the first part of his prayer, of my prayer. Matthew Perry got what he wanted, fame. That said, like the prodigal son in the story Jesus told, he ended up, and I think he'd probably agree with this, he ended up in the pigsty, like the prodigal son, of his own addictions. But God can do whatever he wants to do. This is a redemptive story. And it appears, I don't know for certain, that God led him through this redemptive story. Because in a way, Matthew Perry later came to his senses like the prodigal. He found God according to his biography. And I quote, I whispered, God, please help me. Show me that you're here. And I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry, that shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of my struggling with God, my wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. He writes, I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time, this time, 30 years later, this time, I had prayed for the right thing. Help. Today, our alternative to Christian hope is self-help, something Matthew Perry tried, but it never truly worked. He needed help from outside of himself. It appears he needed help from God. Each week in a series called Alternatives to Christian Hope and Their Antidotes, we're addressing serious temptations to abandon divine, substantial Christian hope for an alternative, to go back to Egypt where we tell ourselves 
Back there, we used to sit around pots of meat, Exodus 16, verse 3. It wasn't true. They were slaves there. It's back to slavery. But our aim in the series is to provide an antidote to alternative hopes and therefore to point you back to the promised land, that is, to resurrection hope. And tonight, it's a self-help and, and pragmatism. Now, this sermon should be consumed and washed down with Bishop Rob's sermon on Stoicism on October the 8th. I've listened to it twice. Do yourself a favour. So five questions as has now been my pattern through the series. What is Christian hope with respect to self-help? What is today's alternative? Why it seems like a good one, but why it's potentially poisonous? And what is its antidote? So firstly, what is Christian hope? Well, Christian hope is, first and foremost, miraculous. It is divine, by which I don't mean beautiful, although it is. I mean from God, divine. It is impossible, Christian hope, impossible from a human point of view. It comes from outside of you. It doesn't bubble up from within. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, my maker and my judge. It is a hope you can't muster up on your own and you can't secure it on your own. It is a gift from God for those who ask, seek, and knock. After all, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Now, I mean, it's, it's a metaphor, but it's a miracle. We're talking about a miracle. Something not achievable by optimism or resilience or mindfulness, as good as those things might be. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. The disciples are thinking rich people are blessed. That means they've, you know, they've got a faulty theology. That means they must be um, saved. And so they ask incredulously, well, who then can be saved? If not the rich, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Christian hope is a very specific thing. It is not just being a little bit more hopeful about life. It's not just being brave to face the future, as good as those two things would be. I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying Christian hope is something different, something deeper and higher, more profound than wishful thinking or, you know, tender steps forward. Christian hope is a future that God has prepared for those who love him, secured by Christ's resurrection in the past, but with power in the present by the Holy Spirit, such that I can say one thing about myself. Where does my help come from? My hope is in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Why is it impossible, miraculous? 
because it is resurrection hope. You're just as likely to come out of a grave alive than to muster up this hope from within. Peter, for example, uses new birth language when he writes, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You can see why this gospel lit the world on fire. You can't take this hope away from me. It can't be taken away. The Apostle Paul uses resurrection language, out of the grave language, when he says, but as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not just a little bit sick, but dead. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when you were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Meditate on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 tonight. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3, he basically says, we were stuffed. We were stuffed. But... When the kindness of love and love of God our Saviour appeared, he's talking about Jesus' life, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, oh no, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by grace, that itself is a miracle, Miracle of forgiveness and canopy that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood. How, how possible is it? With God, all things are possible. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You can see why I'm arguing that Christian hope is miraculous. It's of God and can be summed up in the phrase, we can't. God can. God, it turns out, can get a camel through the eye of a needle. So the Apostle Paul says, the only way to get it, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. God has to answer that prayer before you can say I'm genuinely Christian. I don't just have Christian values, but I'm awake to the grace of God and hope in him. What then is today's alternative? Well, today's alternative is self-help, self-help. The history of the self-help movement spans centuries. On one level, self-help is as old as Adam, who ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent effectively saying to him, here is how you can be your wisest self now, wiser than God who's withholding something good from you. While the movement has evolved over time, the core idea remains constant. Empowering individuals to improve their lives, overcome challenges, and reach their full potential. Now, I don't know about you, but who doesn't want that? Hmm? Who doesn't want that? I want that. But it is self-help. You do not rely on the other. It's up to you. 
The resources are within you. The roots can be traced back to the ancients. Stoicism, as we learned on October the 8th, do yourself a favour, is an ancient school of thought encouraging emotional resilience and self-control, and Stoicism laid the groundwork for many self-help principles today. In the 19th century, in the 1800s, the self-help movement gained momentum with works like Sam Smiles, self-help. It's in the name, of course. Sam Smiles. You're always going to write that book, weren't you? Uh, self-help emphasizes personal responsibility and hard work as the keys to success. In the 20th century, it brought Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Anybody heard of this one? Books like this emphasized interpersonal Skills, motivation, and wealth creation. Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking was a Christian, Christianish, Christianish version of the movement. He was a minister of a reformed church in Manhattan that I used to walk past regularly, the Marble Church, when I lived in, uh, in New York. Then, of course, there's the 1980s and 90s, Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. Hard not to think that's an autobiography. The man is huge. And of course, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, a lot of all, all of this comes from pragmatism, what works, and of genuine research. And uh, I, myself, personally, really like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I really like it. Sometimes self-help comes in a high form in, in philosophy and um, practical psychology. I finally read Viktor Frankl's amazing work, Man's Search for Meaning, this year. Viktor Frankl was put into a concentration camp as a Jew, as a psychologist, and survived it, and came out of the Holocaust with some reflections on how you can survive the most profound suffering. It really was and is a remarkable work. Um, find something to live for and focus on it. You'll find out that you're not really the prisoner after all. You can do that even in Auschwitz. He has a right to be heard. Digital media and online communities have put oxygen to the flame of self-help, blogs, podcasts, platforms or claiming a way forward. Think Brené Brown, who's helped lots of people. She's given my wife and I a piece of advice on marriage. Took two minutes to watch, but it's transformed the way we greet each other at the end of a day. I'll send it to you if you want to see it. Now, of course, it's, it's, uh, it is its own genre. So you can go into a bookstall and, you know, across the aisle from religion, downstream from even spirituality is a very accessible genre called self-help. If I can quote the movie When Harry Met Sally, someone is staring at you in personal growth. Why then does it seem like a good alternative to Christian hope? Well, simply, it's given countless people a sense of hope about their lives. It's often very practical, 
you know, how to interrupt negative thinking, how to re remove toxic people from your lives. It's inspired individuals to take control of themselves. And to somebody who's spinning out of control, you know, on one level, you'll take anything that works. It offers guidance, strategies, and a way forward when you're stuck. You know, you come to church and it's like, oh, Israel this and Psalms that and the prophets and Jesus, and you're like, just tell me how to deal with, you know, toxicity and negativity. Self-help will do that for you. The truth is that self-help, uh, well, it, it claims to do that for you. The truth is that self-help probably has Christian roots. It's hard to imagine the self-help movement um, whisking its way like wildfire through the Islamic world, for example. The Bible is strong on personal responsibility, uh, of not blaming others for your problems, of watching yourself, Jesus himself said that, of improving your speech, living wisely with others, productivity, working with all your might as to the Lord. But of course, the Bible is set in being strong in God, not in self, and for God, for his glory, not for self or self-improvement. Some of us over the years have found ourselves mocking self-help. You know who you are. But others of you, you know, when you're desperate and looking for any help, you'll, you'll take it. Um, <laughs> I'll mock self-help some weeks, and then I'll read a magnificent book on marriage. I'm married myself and on marriage that offers, well, self-help, you know, face towards each other rather than away from each other. Boom, right? I'm there. Practical advice. I mock it, then I like it. There are, of course, some ministers of the gospel who I think deny the gospel by taking Bible stories and simply turning them into self-help sermons. You know, Nehemiah didn't let the turkeys get him down. So should, you, you shouldn't either. You know, David used music to find peace. You should too. That's Solomon. No, Saul used music to find peace. You should too. We're going to use this recording tonight for the podcast. Got the other ones wrong. When I was ministering in New York City, I got into a little trouble because in a sermon I mocked uh, Dallas pastor Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Nows, sort of glorified self-help. And a woman came up to me afterwards and said to me, Joel Osteen's sermons got me through a period of great despair. And I've got to tell you, I felt chastened. However, and yet, why it's potentially poison. Poison is a thing alien to a healthy body, doesn't belong there and needs to be removed. Self-help, advice, advice is not poison in itself, of course not. I mean, there's good advice and bad advice. There's plenty of practical advice in the Bible. I'll give you an example. The book of Proverbs begins with, if you're young, don't join a gang. That's pretty good advice. It will not go well for you if you join a gang. Self-help is only potential poison if it runs counter to the Christian gospel and is chosen as an alternative. I have the glories of resurrection hope, but you know, I'm just gonna rely on these practical tips from this book that I, that I read. At the heart of the Christian gospel is that we cannot help ourselves. This is why it's potentially poison. We need God to come and save us. God grants the hope 
and it is miraculous. God miraculously parted the Red Sea to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They weren't each told by Moses to find a decent self-help book to work out that it's really the Egyptian masters who are actually the prisoners, if only you just reordered your thoughts and, you know, became a little bit more positive about the situation. In the same way, God miraculously took on death to free me, not from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to my own sin when Jesus Christ died my death on the cross. This requires a simple admission that I am a great sinner and Christ a great saviour, as former slave trader John Newton famously said. That is, I'm not like a pretty sturdy, decent home that just needs a lick of moral paint. I'm a pretty good person when I compare myself to others. No, on the contrary, I'm a rotten house and I need the whole thing rebuilt from within. That point was made by the prophet Ezekiel in the text that Jenny read to us a little while ago when the prophet said a message from God, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you profaned among the nations where you have gone. God says, you're the problem. This is not because you're good that I'm about to do these things or because you have a spark of goodness within you that just needs to be fanned into flames. What will God do? I will save you. I'll redeem you. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. It's a metaphor for forgiveness. And I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll remove from you your heart of stone, hardened to God, cynical, and give you a heart of flesh beating for God and others. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow me. You need a whole new heart, which only God can give, a whole new spirit. This is why it's miraculous and of God. Summed up in the phrase, we can't, God can. In the Bible, we are slaves needing to be liberated. We have wronged God needing forgiveness. We are objects of wrath, needing salvation, needing Christ's atoning death. We are exiled from God and need to be brought home like the prodigal. We are naked, needing clothing. We're going to sing that in a moment's time. We are dead and we need a resurrection. What does the old prayer book say in the communion service? We are not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But what is the next word? But thou art the same Lord, whose property, whose nature is always to have mercy. We're going to sing this in a moment's time. Christian hope then takes us to the bottom. Far lower than you were thinking you had to go. In order to lift us higher than the heavens. Paul says you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies after having died with him. Your life is now hid with God in Christ. Like the story of the prodigal son or of Matthew Perry, in the Bible, the first step to come into your senses is to realize we can't. Alcoholics know this. 
I was once with a bunch of friends driving my new four-wheel drive. It was, it was a short-wheel-based Pajero, which I ditched after marriage. It was a wise choice. Uh, long ago, uh, I was with a bunch of friends. I think Emma was there with us. We were driving along Stockton Beach, north of Newcastle, right up against the Pacific Ocean. I wanted to get some of those photos where you look like you're advertising the four-wheel drive. And I drove, you know, part sand, part beach. I drove into a drainage spot of the waves. I couldn't see the drainage spot. And the four-wheel drive just stopped in its tracks, the chassis against the sand. It just sunk. You know, I put the car into gear and it felt like it was in neutral. Imagine that. And I'm like, it's okay. My friends and I can dig this thing out. It's okay. My friends and I are digging, digging, and digging, and digging just going further and deeper into the sand. And I'm like, remember I'm, not, I'm an optimist, the first one in the series? <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. The tide will leave and, you know, it will dry up. This guy comes along and says, mate, you're not following the tides, are you? I said, what do you mean? He said, this tide is going in, not out. It's coming in. And I'm telling you right now, your short wheelbase Pajero will be swallowed up by the Pacific Ocean in mm, 45 minutes. <laughs> Eventually, a, an old man driving an old tractor at an old sand mine came up over the hill from whence cometh my help. And he pulled me out. I have the pictures to prove it. <laughs> I couldn't find them because it was pre-Facebook. And so, you know, are there any photos that aren't on Facebook? The answer is millions of them. He was the only one that could have saved that car that day. I couldn't, he could. Now, I don't care about the car. Well, I do, I probably would still be paying it off, actually, quite frankly. It was saved. I don't care about the car. I do care about human beings before a holy creator. I care about sinners in the hands of a holy and righteous God. We can't, God can. And when Christ died on the cross, when Christ rose, this is the tractor coming up over the horizon. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Fifthly, what is its antidote? Well, the antidote to self-help as an alternative to Christian hope is to surrender to God. Like the prodigal son you're not picking up a self-help book to reimagine the pigsty. You're coming to your senses. Like Israel, as slaves in Egypt, you cry out to God. I can't. You can. Horatio Spafford lost five of his daughters at sea. And so he articulates in him, he wrote, and peace like a river, which we're going to sing in a moment's time. He articulates what self-help and Christianity have in common, namely they're both trying to connect to both suffering and sin. Crossing the Atlantic in the 19th century where the captain said, this is where your five daughters were lost at sea, he penned, when peace like a river, tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He writes, whatever my lot, thou 
hast taught me to say, O God, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Self-help says, whatever my lot, I have taught me to say. Thou Carnegie has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Christian hope assumes powerlessness, whereas self-help assumes a powerful spark within, one that you need to discover. And amazingly, the antidote to self-help as an alternative is to surrender, not just to the forgiveness of God, to God himself, but to God at work within you. Sanctification, in the end, is the antidote to the poison of self-help, which is God at work within you by the Holy Spirit, making you more like Jesus Christ. It is the power of the Holy Spirit doing his thing in you. It is an internal work after being given a new heart and a new spirit. So we cry out to God like Israel in Egypt, who then leads us into the wilderness, that's where you are now, ahead of the promised land, that's resurrection hope. And before entering the promised land right here, right now, God is teaching us that, quote Deuteronomy, that a man does not live by bread alone, but rather by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His word dwells within you, giving you transforming hope, the kind of hope you want when you reach for the self-help book, looking to go back to Egypt, but the help is not there. Christian hope comes from God. As Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. My father became a Christian in his 30s because of that very verse. Or in the words of Matthew Perry, I had been in the presence of God, I was certain of it, and this time I had prayed for the right thing, help. Or in the words of this immortal hymn that we're going to sing in a moment together, seated and as a prayer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. You won't get that from self-help. My prayer for you tonight as, as a pastor is not that you'd be brave within, although being brave within is a good thing. It is this, Romans 15 verse 14, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.